podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Dr. Carrie Freeman was widowed right before her 30th birthday in 2001, just a few weeks after September 11th. She was married to a loving guy, Dave, who died during a stem cell transplant at age 31 during his second bout with cancer. He first had bone cancer, followed by leukemia. They met in a kung fu class and were together in Florida for six years, married for two of them. And their only kids were cats. While Dr. Carey was mourning, she used every resource and tactic she could to help her cope. Books, individual therapy, group therapy through hospice, friends, meditation, and yoga, time in nature, exercise, uplifting music, funny movies, nutritious food, baths, tea, dark chocolate, and eventually antidepressants. She recommends we do it all, whatever it takes to help us. Dr. Carey also used journaling as a form of personal therapy and still does more than a dozen years later. The good thing about writing our thoughts in a journal is the privacy it offers. We can be completely candid with no one to judge us and no one for us to bore because we can choose to go over tedious or repetitious thoughts as many times as we want or need to. With a journal, we are free to express just how bad we really feel without worrying our friends, family, and co-workers. However, the point of Dr. Carrie Freeman's work is not just to purge, but to progress. The Widow's Journal, Questions to Guide You Through Grief and Life Planning After the Loss of a Partner, is your comforting space for personal therapy and expression. It's also a guided planning process, a sanctuary for us to determine what we really care about, what we want, how we can bounce back to experience joy again, and what we should do to make our lives meaningful in this new and unexpected chapter after losing our life partner. Unlike many books on grief, The Widow's Journal doesn't tell us what we should do or feel, and it isn't a memoir or collection of other people's stories. Instead, similar to a workbook, it asks you relevant, frank, and provoking questions so we can better clarify and understand what we are feeling. Sometimes it lets us wallow, but primarily it asks us how we can better cope and take care of ourselves, how we want to interact with others, including potentially dating again, how we want to commemorate our loved one, how we want to live our new life, how we can find meaning and purpose by helping others, what we regret, and what we appreciate. Valeria interviews Dr. Carrie P. Freeman, A lifelong journaler, she used her personal writing to help deal with the loss and ultimately created The Widow's Journal, a valuable tool for others experiencing the heartbreak of losing a partner. After being widowed, Dr. Freeman channeled her energy toward earning a Master's in Media Studies from University of Georgia, 2004, followed by a Doctorate in Communication and Society from University of Oregon, 2008. Studying media ethics, social movement advocacy, environmental communication, and animal media studies, she has presented her work at conferences worldwide and authored numerous scholarly journal articles and books as an associate professor of communication at Georgia State University in Atlanta. 
She previously worked in human resources, focused on professional development and personal growth training in Florida, her native state. At the four universities she has been affiliated with, she has been active in animal protection student group leadership and even in the founding of several of those groups. She has also volunteered for a decade as a radio host on Radio Free Georgia, producing weekly shows on animal and environmental protection topics at the community radio station down the block from her apartment in Atlanta, where she lives with her dog, Elliot, surrounded by stacks of books, too many pillows, random antiques, and photos of her many travels prior to the pandemic. In her free time, she enjoys nature walks, dog parks, writing, travel photography, comedy programming, playing board games, and sketching tiny house and treehouse designs. From her porch, she and her dog both enjoy watching squirrels, birds, and chipmunks, but for different reasons. Here is the interview with Dr. Carrie Freeman. In your own words, who is Carrie Freeman? Wow. Well, I would say I have a kind of a unique answer to say that I am a human animal earthling. And that's actually the topic of my next book, promoting that human animal earthling identity. So I think I should also embody it. And by human, I mean, I'm a member of the human race and I stand in solidarity with humanity and our quest to be more just and peaceful. And the animal component is that I see myself as part of the animal kingdom and that I'm proud of that connection and identity and that I recognize that I'm one of many sentient beings uh, on the planet. And I really love other animals and fellow animals and and try to uh, show a lot of respect for them. And then the earthling component is Uh, adding some humility by recognizing that I'm just one species among millions um, on the planet and that I am interconnected with them. My life is interconnected and I need to uh, take care of them as they take care of me. Uh, So that's just hopefully giving me a sense of uh, humility. So I try not to be just light green, but I try to be deep green. I love your answer to that question. Thank you, Carrie. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, The Widow's Journal, questions to guide you through grief and life planning after the loss of a partner, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. The first one is, what is life to you? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, I think I'll answer that more in terms of maybe the meaning of life because something I tried to distill and I I came up with this idea and I have it kind of posted around my house and I write it out often is that I think the meaning of life is taking care of yourself and taking care of others. And so and I say that not just as a human that we do that but actually plants do that other animals do that they take care of themselves they take care of others and that is what life is about. And so actually when I sign the widow's journal for people when I give it to them um I write take care of yourself and take care of others. Mm, I love the combination. Yeah, it's just perfect. What do you think is the opposite of life? Oh, wow. I mean, obviously, you know, the obvious answer is death, but that's not a fun answer at all. Um, So (laughs) I think it would maybe be, if I took it literally based on how I answered that question, it would be a certain kind of selfishness or a sense that you are completely independent and that you don't acknowledge that, you know, you your life is because of so many other people in society and so many other species. And, um, and if you're not really kind of living it to give back to others, you're not really participating. I feel like that that's not really living or contributing. I absolutely agree. And it makes me think about separation, feeling that we are separate from others in life itself. What is your own definition for grief? first word that comes to mind is just pain. It's like, it's just, and I like put my hand actually on my 
chest because that's kind of seemed to be like where I feel it the most. So it's a grief is a sensation, but it's also in some ways something to be proud of because everyone's going to have to go through it if you've been lucky enough to care about others. So it's not something that many of us can escape. If, at least if you live, if you're lucky enough to live a long life, that means your life is going to involve grief where you miss something, someone usually that, or even a future life that you thought you were going to have that you're not having now, future experiences. Uh, so there's a lot you know, built into that concept. So it definitely is a negative concept in the sense that we want to avoid grief. But at the same time, it's something we need to expect. And there is something positive about it, if you can look at it that way, to say that it means that you cared a lot about somebody. And that, again, as I pointed out, is part of what living is all about. So true. Do you think that we can somehow prepare for losing somebody we love? Is that possible? Well, I think, yes, there's, if you know that it's coming, like I, my husband uh, was a young man, but he had cancer. And so he was going through a stem cell transplant and it was very dangerous. And so we always knew that he would die. So I had, you know, I knew that that was coming but at the same time, still, when someone's gone, they're gone and your life is then changed. So whether it happened quickly or whether you knew it might happen because they had a disease, still your life is radically altered if you wanted to continue spending it with that person. So in that case, I also think you never know how it's going to fully affect you and how long it's going to affect you. So um, I think there's maybe some things you can do to prepare, like if you want to be one of those really organized people who, you know, you get life insurance on, you know, like you just, you plan for those pragmatic things that you can control. But then, you know, a lot of it, it's just, you just have to see how you are affected. It's not possible to prepare emotionally. Yeah, I don't think so. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Carrie? Oh, it's interesting that you mentioned freedom because just recently I was I was thinking about freedom in terms of happiness, that that's another way to describe happiness, or at least um, I'm, I'm looking in one of my little journal books, <laughs> some notes that I wrote down about freedom. I wrote, what does freedom mean to me? And I have all these things I wrote down, less scrutiny, less worry, less anxiety, less pressure, less deadlines, less negotiation less regulation, less possessions, uh, less obligations, more choices, mobility. I mean, so <laughs> I, I kind of maybe overdid that answer, but the, I think, I, so I don't just mean freedom in the sense like freedom to, like the typical kind of political sense of freedom where we think about freedom as, in terms of rights. And in a way I, I take human rights for granted and that's something that we're all struggling to with in this country is to make sure that everyone has equal rights. Uh, so there's that level of freedom, but it also is just another word for something we're all seeking, which is more of like a mental freedom from a sense of fear or anxiety that is like a cloud hanging over us that really holds us back uh, from enjoying life. I agree. Do you somehow also connect freedom to inner peace? Oh, wow. Well, yes, I I probably think that inner peace, and I know you have a book on this, so you're more of an expert on this topic, but I do think that is something that we're all seeking. And maybe that feeling of freedom is a peacefulness. Because I, I have also some you know, I try to surround myself with different affirmations and things. And so I have this uh, picture framed on the wall of, and it says peace and pleasure. And it's a picture of me swinging on this rope when I was in on a beach in uh, Australia and has all these other beautiful images around it. Because one of the things that I'll say, if I ever have to give a toast, because normally you never know what to say in a moment like that, but yeah. I just yeah. say to moments of, to moments of peace, and moments of pleasure, because ultimately that's what I'm always seeking. And that's what everybody wants. Because I know there's been some times in my life, and you've probably experienced this, where 
just there's just struggle or you can't please everybody. And especially if you get in a leadership position, you may find this that there you just that you're not actually seeking all this joy and happiness so much as like a sense of contentment where you really weren't bothered and worried about everybody and pleasing everybody and meeting their expectations. And so that's something, um, anyway, this notion of inner peace is actually in a certain level of contentment is the most valuable thing that you can have in terms of your mental health. I agree. And I love that you use that word contentment within. We are not attached to other things outside of our control, outside of us. It might be the best place to be. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> I think compassion Compassion is one of my favorite. I'm always talking about values and a lot of what I write about is our value system. And so this notion, I really want people to be more altruistic and not just towards human species, but towards other species. And I think for us to do that means we have to feel a sense of compassion, kinship, empathy with others and not just always make our appeals or decisions based on our own self-interest. So yeah, my next book on the human animal earthling identity is about expanding our notion of self so that we are more inclusive. And then I think that brings about the vision that I want of where we're actually taking care of all humans, fellow animals, and the world together. And we're putting life and living beings first instead of profits And uh, well, that's mainly what is driving a lot of the problems in the world is since people, institutions, corporations uh, being too self-centered and um, having systems set up that do not reward or incentivize or encourage um, compassion and life. You know, like a lot of our economic systems aren't focused on protecting and investing in life and the well-being of our ecosystems and our own health. And so like can we change those systems uh, through the through our political system and our economic system? Can they change and adapt to actually like where our economic system is seen as successful when it promotes and protects life? Because right now it's not like that. So that's asking for a lot, but <laughs> that's actually what I think we have to do to make sure that, you know, because we're in a, a, a mass extinction of species. So I'm very cognizant of the massive changes that humanity needs to make and our systems need to facilitate that. So we do have to, I feel like, engage in politics in order to try to make that happen. I agree. And I have two questions for you that relates to that topic. One, do you think that what's happening now? It's an opportunity for that kind of change. First question. The second, I have been talking to a lot of people about and I have heard about that we need to shift more from this masculine energy to the feminine energies. So does it make sense to you? Oh, I love it. I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I have, in some ways, I have these controversial beliefs like, okay, it's time for women and people of color to get a chance to be the leaders of the world. And, and what would that look like? And so and let, maybe if I was a leader, maybe I would mess it up, but then it's my turn to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, don't, I actually don't think <laughs> we would mess it up. But so, yes, I do think we need to, uh, in, in many ways, we need the men of the world to be open, um, and particularly men who've been privileged in many cases that might be white uh, straight men, to be willing to give uh, opportunities, uh, much more opportunities, uh, so that our leadership mirrors the actual citizens in society. So we definitely need that. And, and to your first point about, because you and I, at the time that we're recording this, we're in the global pandemic. And we're also, um, there's a lot of protests right now in support of Black Lives Matter and for reform of the criminal justice system. So, and I do think these are definite moments that 
are opportunities to show that there's political will for change. Because I think as a general rule, everybody always wants health, public health. Everybody says they always want human rights for everyone. But then it seems like it's just not a priority most of the time. And so now we're suddenly seeing, no, um, having health equity and getting rid of health disparities based on race and class, that should be a priority. And and also this idea like, no, we shouldn't put up with anybody because of the color of their skin being discriminated against and attacked and arrested and prosecuted uh, like we see that we've always seen in our criminal justice system. So I think now is the time when maybe politicians have the, um, I don't know, the I'm calling it political will, but they have the capital, they have the opportunity to actually get something changed. Um, that could be these systemic changes where we transform our healthcare system, we transform our criminal justice system. And as I mentioned before, we're always needing to transform just the way we treat um, our whole system of living and the way we treat other species and the planet. So sometimes it does take a crisis, unfortunately, to wake us up to priorities that we have been avoiding. It's unfortunate, but it's also a reality, right? We need the experience in order to change. So let me change the conversation. Not much, I guess, that leads me nicely to my next question about love. What is love to you? Oh, wow. I think you're very fortunate. It's something you're very fortunate if you experience and I know in the English language, we use that term for so many different types of relationships. And I think in other languages, they might be more specific because we usually think of it in terms of romantic love. And in the Widow's Journal book really is about romantic love. Um, but at the heart of the notion of love, I feel like it's just a like a fantastic uh, admiration, respect, appreciation, care for for someone else um, and that they warm your heart, like just being around them. Like, you know, while I love, because of course you can love anyone to at different levels. Because like I love squirrels, for example. <laughs> That's cute. When squirrels, I see them all the time. Uh, my dog, quote unquote, loves them, meaning he seems to want to always uh, run after them and attack them. But I, but whenever I see squirrels and chipmunks, I just get this warm feeling like I just love them. <laughs> and I know they probably don't return the favor. They don't care about me that much. But it's just like this feeling that overcomes you where there's just like a deep sense of appreciation for that other person or um, other animal person. <laughs> so, but I think it, we're, it puts us in a good place if that's an emotion that's really prominent most of the time. And so if we can foreground that in our daily life, we'll probably be in a much better mood. Yes, absolutely. I love the way you bring the animals into the conversation, right, with compassion. That's really beautiful. What, where, and who is God to you? Ah, that is a challenging question for me because I've moved away from traditional religions and haven't really found what I wanted in any of the world's major religions. But I see myself as like a deep person who cares about living a meaningful life. And I try to respect other people's notions of God or religion. And so like in writing the Widow's Journal, um, I just, I wanted to bring faith or religion in at some point, but not have it just be privileged on Christianity, which in the United States is usually what gets privileged. And so I didn't want to write a book that assumed everybody has the same religious belief. And so I wanted it to just be kind of open. And um, part of, I think, one reason that I haven't found world religions as comforting to me as they, I, they are to other people is, I think, my sense that I am part of the animal kingdom. And so I think I would probably identify more with certain indigenous cultural beliefs um, that really were less anthropocentric, less human centered. Um, so, um, but I, like I say, I try to respect that um, having the sense of community from a faith community that other people have 
is can be really meaningful. And I'm actually kind of jealous and, and sad that I've mm-hmm. moved away from that in my own life and mind because it doesn't feel authentic to me. So I don't want to fake it. But at the same time, I could see that during the grieving process, that if I had more of a faith in God, or if I thought I was going to heaven and that I would see my my loved one, Dave, my husband, if I was going to see him again, I would feel really comforted by that. And so I would like to believe that, but I just don't, I don't know what's going to happen or if I ever would see him again. So I kind of assume that I won't. Um, and so I have to, um, I guess I reach out to what might just be called secular ethics, because also as a professor, I teach ethics, but in a communications context. So I'm very keyed into the value systems that most of the world religions promote, which you've mentioned, things like love and peace um, and truth and honesty and compassion. Um, But I just don't really, um, I don't put them in a religious context and instead just put them kind of in a, again, an ethical uh, context. But then it's up to my students to, you know, they draw upon their own religious backgrounds in informing their career ethics that we talk about. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? I think there is, even though I, I hope the two are connected for people who are religious. But I think you can say that you're a spiritual person without saying that you subscribe to any of the world's major religions. So um, I think it's more that you're someone who's open to thinking there's something maybe magical out there that, you know, um, like I all suddenly get into feng shui or I, you know, I get, or I suddenly sometimes will have these feelings that everything's destined and there's all, and there's a sense of fate, but then something will happen that'll knock me out of that belief. But I, I like the fact that I could sometimes be more open to having faith in, in those kind of unknown concepts instead of just being such a kind of a practical person. I, I will say though, that one thing was difficult for me was that around the time that my husband was going through his stem cell transplant for his leukemia, I was really getting into feng shui. And so I feng shuied the hospital room and our apartment and different things. Okay. And so then he died. And so then you could say, well, oh, that didn't work. But I know that's not the right attitude. But at the same time, I also then kind of got more pragmatic at, you know, and, and was feeling like, well, maybe, you know, maybe there isn't a, you know, he didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. And we didn't do anything wrong. And so um, I had to just kind of shift my way of looking at things, um, just like anybody does if they believe in religion, like did God let them down if their loved one dies? Because you're praying that that won't happen. And then it does. So then you have to shift your sense uh, and, and just say that you are, you have a gratitude for the time that you did spend together um, and that you're trying to live life the right way but doesn't mean you're always going to be rewarded by that, that things, you know, that you're always going to get what you want or what you deserve. Um, You don't always get that and bad things happen to good people. So there's also this kind of tough love sense of of reality that you are going to have, everyone's going to have a lot of struggles. Yeah, and that's true. There's one question in your book that's very powerful where you talk about exactly that. Do you think everything happens for a reason and this was fated? Or do you think this was random and just unfortunate as death is a natural part of life and happens every day to countless living beings? So why should you be the exception? So that's profound. That's exactly right. What, that's right. An example of me translating something in my own life into the book, into Uh, trying to make it just a provocative question for somebody to think about. And they're going to answer it in different ways. Um, And I think that I answer it in different ways, even as I go through different stages in my life. You know, like I can get really pragmatic. I think after that happened, I got more pragmatic and was like, well, there's no death just happens and there's nothing you can do about it. And this is just random. And, you know, but then there's other times I, I, I might go back to thinking that 
we were fated to be together for this small moment that was special. You know, like I, um, I, I guess maybe I don't always have a consistent way of looking at things, but it does make life more interesting to kind of explore different different viewpoints, some of them more kind of spiritual and fun, some of them more pragmatic and kind of realist and skeptical. How did you become a writer? Well, I think just even as a kid, you know, I liked writing in my diary. Back then you called it a diary, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a little Hello Kitty yeah. diary or whatever I had. And writing, oh, the poems I wrote were so awful now that I look back at them. <laughs> but still, I mean, I think that's cute that I was trying to write poetry. And then, you know, your teachers teach you how to write an essay and you have all your little note cards and everything. And so, and I think I just enjoy it. And I I identify as a writer now, as a professor and scholar, that's, I'm a teacher, but also um, a writer. So I enjoy it. So I have my writing that I do in my professional scholarly life. And then I have my writing that's more like journal writing, which the widow's journal is about that personal side of my life. And that writing, I don't usually share with people. It's literally in my bedside table. There's a whole bunch of journals on interesting, pretty paper. (laughs) And then I just write about things I'm worried about, things that I think that I want to work through, things I need to figure out for myself about how to reduce anxiety or find freedom and peace. You know, these things, (laughs) these big questions we've been talking about. I like to doodle and design, you know, a tiny house and tree houses and just kind of have fun with my imagination. And so like how positive and negative things, you know, go in these journals. So I see them less as, you know, they're not really kind of for history. They're more for just me talking to myself. And that's what writing is, just taking your thoughts and kind of organizing them. There's something magical about writing magical and healing at the same time. What was the intention of writing your book, The Widow's Journal? We know the inspiration you have been talking about, but the intention. Yeah, well, I think it came out of the fact that I didn't exactly find everything I was looking for in all the grief books that I, because I read a lot of them uh, when I was widowed and I was age 29. And so I was reading, just reading so many books because I had never experienced death before. And it was just also such a profound loss at such a, it's just unexpected, you know, at a young age. So I really, um, as we talked about, wasn't prepared for it. So I'm like, and as the scholarly part of me is like, ooh, let me read all these books. And so, and they are helpful. It is helpful to read what psychologists write. It's to read about other people's experiences. And I think I was doing my own journaling kind of on the side, but, and then I, so a lot of these things that I put in this journal were kind of questions that I worked through. I don't, it's kind of weird that I decided to write the widow's journal and it was like a, at least 12 years. It might've been closer to 15 years after my husband died. So, you know, I don't really know why I waited so long. Part of it was because I was getting a PhD and I was on the tenure track. So that might've been Part of it, but also part of it was that my uncle died. And so I was trying to do something for my aunt. So I like I wrote down a bunch of I organized some questions and wrote them all down and kind of created a handwritten version of this journal and sent it to her. So that was one of the things that um happened prior to me realizing, oh, I think, you know, I have something to offer here. And so yeah, and then I was trying to find a publisher, really couldn't find a publisher. And that's actually a really difficult thing, <laughs> finding a, a publisher. So I end up learning about um, self-publishing and getting finding a student graphic designer and pulling things together on my own. Because I did have some experience with publishing, but that was more like an academic, in an academic setting. And this is more of like a book for the popular, for, for everyone in the public. So um, anyway, that's the impetus of that in some ways was my uncle dying and wanting to do something for my aunt and feeling like I had this um, particular perspective as a widow. And I, as a teacher also, I like to facilitate interesting discussions. So you're always coming up with provocative questions as a teacher. And that's what this book is. It's like a series of provocative questions that don't exactly have a right answer. And so you just, they're just for you to think about. I love the questions. I have actually selected some of my favorites, and I love the design. It's so beautiful. We can 
color them, these flowers and the birds. It's really fun just to look at it. Yeah, since it needed to be black and white inside, I wanted to make it so that it was very graphic with beautiful birds and and flowers, but done in such a way that actually it's almost like a, maybe a, how a tattoo artist might draw things and then you could color them in because also that's become very soothing to a lot of people lately is coloring. So, and the bird, actually there's like this finch type bird again. I like birds and squirrels. And so they also make me happy. So the <laughs> birds and the flowers were something that I put in there, but tried to use a graphic design that was a bit modern. So it didn't seem like too Victorian or old style, but I tried to have the bird is usually by herself on the page, which is kind of symbolic. And some pages don't have a bird at all, but I don't know, meaning that you kind of symbolizing that you are kind of walking through this journey in some, not that you don't have a community that's helping you, but in a way, this is your own experience. It's a singular experience. And so anyway, there's some symbolism there, I think, with with the bird throughout the book. Just wonderful to look at it. I have in front of me, it's really, really soothing yeah, to the eyes and, and the heart loves it too. Yes. And that's what's about a journal, I have to say, though, because if you're going to, at this point, you know, there's ebooks everywhere and, and this there's an ebook version yeah. of my book here too. But what's fun about journal writing is the experience, right? Like the pleasure of physically having a pen like in a nice smooth like a nice smooth yeah. pen and like a fun color yeah. and yeah and just like your hand experiencing your handwriting and the feel of it on the page just so it's it's very analog right <laughs> it's very it's that old school tapping into something kind of uh, yeah kind of primitive about I think about writing and having that the book in your hand um, but you don't you don't really necessarily need my book. You could just literally take any beautiful paper and a pen and create your own journal and decorate it in your own way. That some anything that makes you happy or gives you pleasure is what you're seeking when you're needing to take care of yourself throughout um, a grieving process. That's another subject that you tap into it with your questions. And I have here self care and self love. This grief, it's a, in a way a solo journey, but support is really important. Oh, it's crucial, actually. So I'm wondering if your understanding of support change uh, throughout the journey of grief. Well, I think it, suddenly I realized how important my oldest friends were to me. <laughs> because also uh, part of it was because I also I'm after I was widowed, I not long after that, I went to graduate school, I moved. And so that was like, that's good in a way to change things up. But then that means I'm meeting new people and they don't, you know, know me. And so suddenly I found that I was wanting to reach out to friends that I had in elementary school and high school and college uh, that because they, that was just a more meaningful relationship as well as my relatives, right? There's people that are really there for you, not just your coworkers and people that you meet when you're out at parties or whatever. So there's a sense, there's a sense that you need grounding. So at, at the most on a personal level, I think it's important if, if any of you know uh, one of your if one of your friends uh, lost somebody, particularly a partner, that uh, you are probably pretty important to them if you've been in their life for a long time. There's someone you can trust and they do want to hear from you and they do, they would appreciate a visit and a phone call, even if you don't live in the same place anymore. Um, because you can, and you can also get support though, from people you don't know who are like therapists and in the hospice groups. And I think that's important too. you meet new people who've had similar experiences, like, um, through a, like a grief support group. Yeah, I mean, it it really, it kind of takes a village of people, but I, I definitely, there's a sense of loneliness in like this hole <laughs> that you have, or I felt like it was like the rug being pulled out from under me. Like I just felt like I wasn't grounded anymore and that I needed to kind of, yeah, reach out to people I've known for a long time and that I really cared about. What would you say are the most helpful things to do and say when in contact with people who have lost someone? And on the other hand, what are the things that are not useful, not helpful? 
that people do and say. One thing I don't want to really scare anybody away uh, with like, oh, don't say this, you know, <laughs> I mean, don't say this to any person because even though there probably are some don't do that. And I mean, I guess I mentioned a few of them in my book <laughs> that weren't, weren't really that because, you know, you do get some people saying, oh, you'll never meet somebody like that again and things like that. It's like, okay, well, if you're a younger person, that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> right. So, but the thing is, the point is, so long as people are being well-meaning and they mean that to be a compliment to your, you know, late partner, then it's not, yeah, there's nothing to be upset about in anything. I think it's better that people are saying something to you rather than not saying anything, because that is definitely something that happens is that people want to leave you alone or they think they don't know what to say or it's just uncomfortable or like, let's say you used to be friends and as like couples and then now you're single. So like socially, it becomes awkward if a lot of your friends are couples um, and then maybe you don't fit in anymore. So then they stop including you. So I would say just actually reaching out is the most important thing. And being honest about not knowing what to say and um, just kind of being there for them. And yeah, because there's just not a perfect way to approach this. I mean, it's hard. One of the questions that's hard to answer is just how are you doing? But then I can't really say that you shouldn't ask somebody that because it's hard to think of another question. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You know how when just in our general life, whenever you ask somebody how they're doing, they're, it's almost like we're forced to say, I'm okay, <laughs> I'm true. good. When we're, you know, oftentimes we're really not. But it is an opening, if you really are curious, it is an opening for you to talk about things you need or how you're doing at the moment. Or so, But I think maybe it's a little more helpful to talk about how are you coping or do you want to go and do anything or what, like, what things would you like to do or can I do for you? Um, that kind of thing would is very helpful. Like when somebody wants and needs company, if you could be there for them and if you could figure out, do they want to talk about their deceased loved one or don't they? And just whatever direction they want to take it, go there. And if you want to talk about things that are bothering you, hopefully they're open to that too. Because I also found that maybe people felt like they couldn't even talk to me about their little problems in their life. Because if people talk to you about their little everyday frustrations, <laughs> then they don't really, that's not, it's not, you still need to be a friend, like a two, it needs to be a two-way street. And so you can't always just as the grieving person, just take from people. You still need to be a real person who listens to everybody's little frustrations. So yeah, I would say just in a way, treat them like a normal person. <laughs> and include them, and then just see what happens. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Just being authentic, like you said, not trying to be perfect or say the right things, right? I like that, Carrie. So the way you have the book formatted, you have questions for the earliest stages of grief, and then you have questions for the early to middle stages of grief, and then questions for the middle stages of grief, and then questions for the later stages of grief. What I would like you to do, we're almost at the end of the interview, but I would love for you to go through the stages, if you can, and talk to me briefly, how was it for you? And what was the most helpful healing methods that you used? Really, And when I'm saying stages of grief, I'm not actually talking about like what a psychologist has said. I'm really talking actually about the passage of time that certain questions that I ask are more appropriate for like right around the funeral and when you're still getting a lot of attention. But I think most of the book focuses on that part that comes after it. In in some ways, it's, you're not, you're shocked and you're frightened and upset when the death first occurs, but you're also getting a lot of attention and support right then with cards and meals and all this stuff. But then it's like as the month or months go by, suddenly you're like, then you actually feel it like, oh, this is what my life is. I'm kind of by myself or I'm having to do things. Maybe you're having to take care, care of kids without a partner. And suddenly you're, you really see what that routine is and you really start to feel it. So in some ways, people might assume that you're steadily getting better and you might be steadily getting worse, right? Because 
And so like one year out or even two years out, you might feel worse than you did two months after it happened. So that's something I think that it's important for people to know. But I also, part of the questions are assuming that as time passes that you may have different questions, like you might consider you want to start dating again. Um, And for some people that might be months after it happens. And for some people that will be years. So, So that's how I tried to kind of arrange it. I mean, and I personally found that I still several years later was crying every day and thought, wow, this is not good. I, I, and that's actually when I decided I needed to probably get on medication, which I had been trying to avoid and for a long time. But I think I had just gotten myself into a pattern um, where I had such low serotonin levels probably because I had just been grieving so much. So you have to also pay attention to how you're doing. And like my feeling is maybe you don't need kind of medications or I chose to think I didn't need them right away because I was supposed to feel really bad at first. But then at like if if it becomes to where like months and years later you're really still having trouble coping, then you might say, you know what, I I maybe I do need some medical help. If you're trying a lots of other things, you've got the emotional support, you're doing the exercise, eating nutrition nutritiously, trying to take care of yourself, journaling, meditating, like all the things that you're trying to do. So um, so yeah, the, the book, really, you could go in, in, in any order in a way because some questions that deal with your finances or dating or your life's mission or your new identity as a single person, like this could be something you address at any time based on when you're ready. The cool thing about journaling is that it's so personal. Like nobody is supposed to read this but you. And so it's not, and so that's why you should, I have some questions in there too that are a little bit more like irreverent or even like, you know, the questions about like, well, what is better about your life now? Like that's not something you're supposed to ever talk about, right? It's supposed to be that this person that died was fantastic and your life is not as good now and you miss them. And But there's also some things that are easier maybe because you're single or whatever. So it's like, I just want, and when you are actually writing just to yourself, you're able to be candid about things that other people might judge you for. And so that's kind of fun and liberating or like freeing, as we talked about freedom uh, in writing in a journal is that you're the only person that's judging yourself and hopefully you're not judging yourself too harshly. I really like this idea, what you just said about the way to approach your book. It's not really go through each stage. We can just start at any stage at any point, just answer the questions we feel like answering if if it resonates with us. So I like that very much. And then I collect, you saw at the end of the book, I also collected a place where they could put all their insights in one place and then transform them into a positive affirmation by stating them in the affirmative. So that would be like a note that you could put around your house, like I seek out moments of peace and pleasure or, you know, I just something really positive. I appreciate all the people in my life or whatever it is. You can collect that. And then there's a place even for images that you could put together that you find beautiful, you find humorous, um, that gives you a sense of gratitude and appreciation. So there is, I think that's the teacher part of mm-hmm. me that wants a culmination. <laughs> like, okay, you're writing mm-hmm. all these things. You're thinking about mm-hmm. things, things, but what did you learn? Mm-hmm. Right. What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about what you want in a relationship moving forward, not only the relationship with yourself, but also if you choose to have another romantic relationship, what have you learned? And so that there's a sense that you can gather that wisdom and knowledge together that's all your own. And yeah, organize your thoughts so that then your actions, you can kind of create that life that you want in this next phase of life. Uh, And you didn't ask for it to be this way where you're on your own, but it's, it's what's happened. And so you're adapting, um, but doing the best you can and doing it kind of in a smart, uh, a smart way to kind of rebuild a, a meaningful life. That's another thing that I really love about your book, The Greatest Insights, because this journaling has a lot to do with self-discovery. Right. Good word. Discovery. Yeah, we wanted to know what we have discovered about ourselves and life itself and others that's really wonderfully 
thought of? Oh, I have so many questions here, but not enough time. But self-love yeah, and self-care, do you connect those two words, self-love, self-care? Are they the same? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think also because I don't have kids, I think I'm all about self-care, right? <laughs> because I can't imagine I have a niece and nephew. And I mean, I love that. But like that's so much work you have to give so to when you're a parent. So I can't, I just can only imagine being widowed or a widower, a widower and having kids to take care of. And then like, how do you find time to take care of yourself? But that's like a big theme of my book and just of my life is part of the pleasures that you get from life by, by treating yourself. Cause there's just so much of life. And, and I think it's designed this way is a struggle. Life can be a struggle to survive. Um, and it is for other animals, um, other species. And so um, we need to kind of have the expe- expectation that it will be hard. And so when you get the chance to have these comforts, you know, and things that it give you joy and pleasure, you should take that. And especially when you're grieving, ha- yes, take it. <laughs> Eat some dark chocolate, take a bath, listen to music, don't stress yourself out. You know, like give yourself a break. Don't try to do everything. You know, just uh, I think you just need to treat yourself more and be the kind of friend to yourself that you would be to someone else. That's beautiful and profound. I have another question about sorrow and joy. Do they coexist throughout the grieving journey? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I don't know that I would have put them together, but I, I think it goes back to my definition of grief meaning there is a sense that you are very fortunate. Like if you're grieving, you're very fortunate that you had such a deep relationship. And the fact that you miss somebody means that you had something worth missing. And so, and some people, maybe they don't, they don't get that, or they've never had the the chance to be in a long-term relationship. And um, so, and I mean, and you don't know if you're going to get another chance. So you just need to be grateful for, or what you have. Um, like one of the lines from my book that is actually one of my favorite lines when I'm talking about hypothetical questions about like, oh, if you could go back, you know, was it worth the heartbreak? Would you actually, if you could go back in time, do this again, which is kind of a weird question, but like, would you marry that person again? Or knowing that they're going to die young, or would you like to have escaped all this heartbreak? And so, and the last question is, does everything meaningful have to last a lifetime to be worthwhile? And I was like, whoa, when I wrote that, I was, I mean, because I think the answer is, I hope not or no, but I think that for us, that is the feeling that things must be forever. And that's what makes them meaningful. But there's so many relationships in our life that are really kind of temporary or the the most, um, profound parts of them or where you get the most attention that's at a certain point in life. And then you don't get to see those people as much in the future, but that doesn't mean they haven't made a meaningful contribution. So like, can we find some gratitude and happiness from something, even if we've lost it, we don't have it anymore. Do we have, you know, like, and that could be true for any lost relationship, even if someone didn't die, but you have a breakup, right? Like, can you still feel like, that was a worthwhile part of your life and it was meaningful and now you're moving on. So, cause I do think, yeah, we want things to be permanent. We want things to be forever. And I, you know, I don't really like change that much. <laughs> I don't still like it and we're supposed to adapt, but, and honestly, I don't like overcoming adversity. I, and like, if I'm ever in another relationship, I would like to die first because I found this really hard. You know, I'm, that's why I don't have all, the wisdom about overcoming adversity. It's also just something you have to do throughout your life many times. So like, how can you try to deal with this, these hard periods in your life and, and move on? And it, in some ways it's nice that I've written this book so many years afterwards, because I really do feel like I have, I am in another period and I, am enjoying life again, because there was a a question I asked in the book is like, are the best years of your life behind you? And that was, I used to think that and that would make me cry every time I thought about that, like, oh, no. And it, you know, in some ways, I don't want to say it wasn't one of the best times of my life. 
And I may not have that meaningful of a relationship again from a romantic standpoint, I'm not sure, but um, but I'm still experiencing all kinds of fantastic. I love being with my niece and nephew and my parents and my friends and radio shows and books and travel. And so a lot of great things are happening. So I wish I could go back and tell myself, which was at this point, it was like almost 20 years ago when my husband died, like that the best years of my life were not behind me. Cause that's a really tough, if you feel that way, it's a really, really tough that's tough, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so I guess what you could say is like, well, you'll go through different phases of life and they'll each have their own benefits and joys. So not, not so much, and maybe we shouldn't compare them all the time and think that we're trying to reach this optimal level of happiness. Because um, then that also makes us hold on to youth and, and those kinds of things that that doesn't make any sense. So we need to be able to, to adapt to each different stage of our life and find what's the benefit of that stage of life. When you say gratitude, that makes me think about meaning. So I have a few final questions for you. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Oh, let's see. Well, one thing I want to say is I wrote the book also to be gender neutral so that it doesn't assume that you're a same-sex couple and it also doesn't assume that your partner that died is a man or a woman anyway. So I, that was just something that was important to me, even though I'm a cisgender straight woman who's writing this book, I guess I just wanted it to be accessible to everyone. One question I think is also interesting that I'll ask, which is about grief that's just kind of provocative is, do you feel worse for your loved one because he or she died and missed the opportunity for a longer life? Or do you feel worse for yourself for having to live without your loved one? Is the grief mainly for yourself and the future you have lost? So that, that's kind of an interesting, I think, a question that whenever someone dies, ultimately, I think we actually are grieving for ourselves. Yeah, but so maybe if, it might even help us if we expressed that sense of compassion more and like had more grief for something that they're not able to do anymore rather than just that we don't get to enjoy them. Because uh, I do think my grief is mostly selfish. Oh, wow. um, and yeah. But if someone's lived a long time, then you can appreciate that they've maybe maximized <laughs> their life. But when you lose somebody who's younger, yeah, there's definitely a sense that we should be yeah, grieving also the opportunities for the contributions that they were going to make that they, they didn't make. And we can just try to celebrate and leave their legacy that they did live. Right. That's a very good point. That's interesting that one of the questions that you mentioned about, was it worth the heartbreak if it is better to have a meaningful experience um, and lose it or not have it at all? Like, yeah, are you willing to risk it? That's like when people, you see all these, when you're watching all these romantic comedies and stuff, people are like, oh, they've got a wall up, right? And they're like, I, can, I get that. I mean, that like sometimes feeling, because like I, I'm single right now and that there is a sense, there is a little bit of a freedom that I don't have as much to lose when I'm single. You know, whereas when you're in a relationship, the closer you get with somebody, there, the more you maybe have to lose. But I mean, there's always something to lose because you've got family, you've got jobs, you've got lots of other kind of things in your life. But that I, you have to kind of, I have to remind myself that's, I, I can't just operate from the standpoint of safety because I, I think I'm still kind of working through that in this sense that I yet don't want to have to go through that again. I don't want to have to use my own book again. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, it's, it's just really hard to do that. But like, I have some neighbors who are uh, women who are experiencing this. So I, you know, I try to talk to them. And But people, a lot of people have been married a long time. And I actually don't know what that would be like, because I was only with my partner for six years. And I was 29 when that, when, when he died. And so, uh, but for some people, if they've spent, you know, 30, 40, 50 years together, I can't even imagine what that would be like you know, and to move on from that. But I do know that those people need our friendship and companionship a lot. Do you ever think this way that kind of gets in the way of falling in love again in a profound way for you? Are you afraid to lose love and then lose again? I think that's true. I think it's true. 
I think it is true on some level, even though I definitely have, you know, dated other people and then been really disappointed when it didn't work (laughs) out, like, you know, they broke up with me or something. So it's not, I will say it's not like I haven't tried. I'm also at a place right now, though, where I happen to be really happy. I'm just really content um, being independent of having a romantic relationship. And actually, I've suddenly, I used to always think, oh, I'm definitely going to get remarried. I really like being married. And I mean, that might be a path for me. But now I've actually changed and think, you know what? I might not get remarried and I'm okay with it. But I wasn't okay with it back when I was widowed. This concept that I was 30 and may never, you know, have another husband was like, what? That's awful. But then um, now I'm approaching 50 and I'm kind of thinking, you know what? I have a lot of friends and family and yeah, I just feel like there's a lot of ways to find love and contentment in your life. And I'm, I find my activism very meaningful and my writing. So, um, but yeah, it's, it depends. I think it's nice because that way, if I do find somebody who's like a best friend to me and we want the same things and it works out, that could be a nice compliment. Uh, but I've actually reached a place where I don't feel that I need it, which is kind of different than I, where I have been in the past. That's interesting to see the ways we change, right, Carrie, throughout life. Yes. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? Oh, yes. I think I give that to myself a lot. And so I have to remind some of my friends when I feel like they're too hard on themselves, you know, that, no, they shouldn't be saying those negative things. I'm probably too nice to myself. No. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of like, you know, just always thinking I need a treat or I deserve. Oh, you I do. Deserve some Absolutely. Care. Although I have high expectations. Like, I mean, I've always been like the straight A student and, you know, somewhat of an overachiever. So there's that aspect. Uh, but I do love to just like take it easy, sit on the hammock swing, eat some chocolate, take a bath. And watch comedy programs. Oh, that sounds wonderful to yeah, me. I <laughs> myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love all those things. Yeah. What is another word for healing, Carrie? Oh, wow. That's awesome. I think in some ways, hope would be that word. Because one of the things about depression, which I've experienced, is that sense of hopelessness or that you're just not looking forward to anything. The same things they used to like, they don't matter that much anymore. And that's pretty scary if you don't have that sense that you can feel better. And so I think in the widow's journal, there's, I'm always helping people find what makes you feel better, what particular things or places or values, or, you know, what is it that can bring you a sense of hope, or you can find more meaning in your life. Um, Because I, anyway, that I feel like is the path to healing or the point of healing is, yeah, so that you can grow and develop and look forward to things again and not kind of be stuck in in something that's painful and negative. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Oh, yeah. I love this question. I've got questions like this in the book, like, oh, if you're going to die in five years or 10 years or whatever, wouldn't it be great if we actually, in a way, lived our life? Because that would be living life to the fullest. Um, but I'm really probably too afraid to do that because I also am almost 50 and I might live to be 100. So I can't really act like, oh, I don't need a 401k. Because mm-hmm. if I did, if I was <laughs> going, if I knew I was going to die in a few years, I would definitely cash in that 401k <laughs> and I would like go travel to all these fantastic places and visit all the most important people in my life. And then I'd build that tree house, you know, or tiny house I've been designing and everything. So things that I'm maybe afraid to do financially because you want to save money or prepare for the future, I think I would just kind of make it all happen all at once. And so the, the real question is, can you do that even if you still might, you know, can you live that life even if you might still live another 50 years or more? Uh, that's that's really challenging. And if somebody knows how, I, I need more. I need some time on that. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> and my final question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Well, I think I'll answer that in terms of three things that I try to incorporate in my life every day that I think are, are important. Um, and the acronym for that is RPM and stands for Relationships, Pleasure, and Meaning. 
So that are like the most important things. And so the relationship part is, am I every day connecting with someone? And that includes, could be my, my dog, Elliot. Um, just like, am I bonding and connecting and building and deepening relationships with somebody enjoying their company? Um, that's the R, the P is pleasure. And that, again, maybe that's the self-care or the mindfulness aspect of actually um, experiencing some wonderful food or a fragrance from gardenia or a bath or a massage or music or just some kind of pleasurable experience that is real sensual. And then the last one, the M is for meaning, like living a meaningful, like doing something that's meaningful or contributing to your legacy. And usually that means that you're doing something for others. And for me, it's my activism in animal and environmental and social justice protection. That's the meaningful part of my life. And that, I think, was one of the things that helped get me through a grieving period that, that my life is more than just what's happening to me or my own personal happiness. It's, it's part of being a legacy of humanity trying to work towards um, improvements you know, towards um, being a more just and peaceful and sustainable society. So I'm, I'm part of that bigger collective group. And that sense of humility, I think, is important so that you don't maybe take yourself too seriously or make it all about you and your own happiness all the time. Right. So true. And your book is part of that meaning. Yeah. What's your mission? Yeah. Yes. I love that. It has been a same word, meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for your presence and your wisdom. I love your wisdom. Oh, thanks, Valeria. Where can we find more information about you, your books, work, products, services, and future projects? Well, you can check out thewidowsjournal.com or you can email me at thewidowsjournal at comcast.net. And the, the book is, most people probably just get it off of Amazon and it's a hardback paper or it's a hard copy paper book or there's an ebook. Um, and I'm thinking of actually even doing an audio book or something because um, I had a lady contact me who was visually impaired. And so that was just giving me the idea of maybe doing an audio book as well. Um, and, I, and my name is also Carrie Freeman, Carrie Packwood Freeman. So people could also look that up to see scholar my scholarly work, which is a little bit different than um, the self-help book that I wrote here. Thank you so much again, Carrie, and we'll talk soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Carrie Freeman, please visit her website, thewidowsjournal.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.